today's episode, we have Rob Fascia, who is a good friend to the Gap Partnership, and I would consider him a good friend to me as well, outside of the fact that he roots for the Chicago Blackhawks. We all know they're having a mediocre season. Uh, Rob has a huge background in the CPG and retail industry, interestingly, first starting his career in the finance world with UBS, but then he found himself working for Sears, for CVS. Uh, for Park City Group, where he was the vice president of data analytics and business solutions, uh, to then moving over to Staples, where he spent a bulk of his time working as the director DMM of computing and mobile devices, then the senior director of DMM technology accessories, and then he was an adjunct professor for a short period of time at Northeastern. He then took the role of COO and head of North American sales operations at Midwest Trading Group and NuvoMed. He was then the Director of Business Development Client Relationships at FDM Sales and is now the President of Vandalay Strategies, which helps CPG companies develop strategic plans to ensure that they receive the highest ROI per dollar spent. Rob, it's a pleasure, buddy. Mike, always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I know the Capitals are right there with the Blackhawks this year, so uh, it's a tough hockey year for both of us. For sure. Rob, how'd you get started in the retail world? Funny uh, antidote, um, I was a finance guy my whole time, came over to Sears actually as a divisional, what they call the divisional C- uh, COO slash um, CFO, did all the capital budgeting, planning, forecasting for seasonal lawn and garden. And in doing so, my merchant would go to China quite a bit. And when he did so, I would go into a lot of senior meetings and instead to basically present our plans and our financials and really act as a, his merchant you know, arm. And at that point, uh, the chief merchant took a liking to me and uh, basically said, you need to come to the dark side and uh, come over to actual merchandising and run a business. And he uh, really, uh, Peter Witsit is his name, and he's now the chief merchant at Meyer. Uh, um, and he's just a really great guy, took a chance on me and, and really gave me the opportunity to run a $200 million snack desk at Kmart uh, and really put that trust in me. That's pretty cool, man. During your career, over the course of all these different places that you've worked, did you find that it was important to be client centric? I did. You know, uh, when I, you know, really the most important thing is understanding who the end customer is. And that end customer really is the consumer. And so when you understand that and you understand who your client is on the retail side, it's the it's the consumer. It's not really the you may be negotiating against a manufacturer with a manufacturer to build win win. But at the end of the day, as a retailer, we were a conduit, right? You're a conduit to get the product from point A to point B. As a manufacturer, if you could do it all yourself and open up like they used to the marketplaces, right, and sell direct and you could get to that outreach you needed, you would do that, too. But um, I would say that the most important thing for me is understanding who that client is and that end client. And then secondly is, is, the, is the culture and, and, and the role that it, it plays. So when you're client centric and understanding the different cultures everybody brings in the backgrounds, you uh, really understand their perspectives. And that's very important when you're negotiating with people or trying to get to a business plan. Because if you put yourself in their shoes, a lot of times you'll basically understand their perspective and you can actually design a strategy where it'll be a win in their mind, but also a win in your, you know, in your financials. That's great advice, man. Great advice. Can you tell me how important negotiation has been over the course of your career? Oh, my gosh, Mike. It's 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 absolutely huge. You know, when I first started negotiating, I had the you know Sun Tzu zero sum game 
mentality, right? I would go into every negotiation, try to take every penny possible and and really try to drive that value for my company. And, you know, I would come back and say, look at all this value I drove. But through not only the Gap Partnership, but just life experience as well, I, I started to realize that that may not have been the best way to go to market. I may have been leaving opportunities on the table in the future because I basically took so much if it's at points if I, when I had leverage and utilized it to its nth, nth degree down the road, then that adversarial type of negotiation was returned to me when I didn't have leverage. And so I, I really came to an understanding that, you know, you don't always have to get every single penny out of every negotiation. And you don't need to basically, you know, bleed somebody out. You you can win a lot for your company globally in the long run by, you know, as, as we say in the baseball world, like, you know, Mike, hitting a lot of singles and doubles versus one grand slam and striking out 20 times. <laughs> I like the analogy. I hope that that carries over to my Baltimore Orioles. We could use some yeah. singles and doubles. Uh, yeah, utilizing... Cubs too, buddy. <laughs> Cubs, yeah. Cubs too. But, you know, Mike, one of the things you had mentioned to me earlier, and, and I want to make a point of, was, you know, in retail, like, what are the most important things to me? And I would tell you there's four key concepts in, in any type of business that you do, and especially in my business today. And, and I, this is what I advise my clients. One is, is to be innovative. Okay. It's so important to be innovative uh, in the marketplace. And I'm very fortunate. I, today, I work with a lot of upstart brands that are bringing new revolutionary products uh, from organic pumpkin seeds that are grown in the United States to uh, you know biscuits and scones that are not made with bleached flour, all that type of stuff that is really almost like farm-to-table product and is farm-to-table product in some cases. So being innovative is one. Number two, I advise my clients, we're, we're gonna make mistakes. I tell my kids every single day, I've learned more from my mistakes in life than I've ever learned from any successes. And so, but the importance is, is to make them mitigatable and non-repeatable. And so for me, it's always about failing fast. That's what I tell my clients. It's, it's really about failing fast. Number three is, is to be humble. And, you know, I, I don't practice this as much as I should. And I, I ask for a little forgiveness at church on Sundays for the lack of hum humbleness sometimes. But in all honesty, it's really about being humble with people and, and, and not always, so like we talked about before, utilizing that full power. Sometimes you have it in negotiation, but really trying to find a win-win. And lastly, and most importantly, is drive consumer value. Sometimes we all get lost in the fact that it is so much about winning or trying to build value for our, our end selves that we don't understand that we're really basically bringing product to an end consumer. At the end of the day, I can like it, the buyer can like it, but if the end consumer doesn't like it, it it's not a viable product. Those are great. The uh, be innovative, you know you're going to make mistakes, remain humble, uh, and drive the consumer value. Those are great key concepts. I think we'll steal them. That's <laughs> good. <laughs> good stuff. Hey, uh, hey, Rob, any really positive or not so positive experiences you've had over the course of your career in negotiation? Oh, yeah, man. So I, I've got a few of them. And again, like I told you, Mike, you always learn more from your failures. Um, but I, I like to start positive glass half full. So we'll start with a, with a success. Back in the CVS days, um, you know, we, we were looking at all innovative ways to try to gain market share. Right. And then in the drug channel, you have a couple of big, you know, really competitors, and especially in Walgreens. And 
you know, being a Chicago native, I always like to give it a, give it, give give a little bit and take a little bit from those guys over there when I was at CVS. Um, so for me, um, we designed a water strategy, and this is really even before the Gap partnership, I understood how you could look at a portfolio approach. But you know, going through Gap really made me understand the full value of that. Um, but in in this case, Nestle, as you know, is a massive company, has multiple arms. And Walgreens had become very transactional with Nestle. They had they had packages that I couldn't get to. They had a 15 pack, which was a cheater pack, created consumer value in perception um, that that we just we we weren't allowed to have. It was a Walgreens exclusive. So what I did with Nestle is try to approach it from a different perspective and treated them as a global company. And I knew they were looking for more Nestle share. They had just acquired Sweetleaf as an alternative tea company. And so basically what I went to my guy at Nestle said is, look, if I'm willing to get rid of Aquafina and Dasani in the cooler only, or in the 24 pack, excuse me, not in the cooler. I, I w- if I was willing to do that, and if I was willing to do a whole glo- global program with your tea and your other divisions and build a whole Nestle portfolio, what would that be worth me for, for me at CVS in a volume-based incentive? They turned and came back and and agreed to that volume-based incentive. And we were basically selling pricing uh, below Walmart at that point on Nestle Pure Life, which was outstanding. One of my favorite antidotes to that story is uh, my Nestle rep came in one day, and I think I still have somewhere around here the email that he, he forwarded to me from the VP at Walmart that basically told Nestle, if CVS runs one more ad of Nestle Pure Life at, 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 below, at below our cost, we're going to be done buying it. And so we had to, we had to make some strategic adjustments for posterity perspective. Um, but, you know, you realize those global, you know, how, how that can be uh, fun. The other funny part of that story is Walgreens, again, I told you at the time was very transactional with it. The category manager, my counterpart over there, who became a good friend of mine at the time, he uh, he was very transactional, got very upset with the, the deals we were running and uh, discontinued the 15 pack. And that, so not only did that do me a favor because I couldn't compete with it, but unfortunately it left Nestle with quite a bit of supply of Ice Mountain in the Midwest. And so we and CVS ended up doing a Black Friday and buying all that volume. And But I had one requirement, and that was that I got a billboard at Lake Cook and the, and the Eden's Expressway, which you can imagine is right outside of Walgreens headquarters, that advertised it for the Black Friday special. So my, my uh, rep... Uh, at Nestle was kind enough to call me uh, before Black Friday and inform me that he just set a record for the amount of swear words on a call from a vendor to a a category manager (laughs) because uh, obviously Walgreens wasn't too happy with that billboard. That's a great story. I mean, that's being innovative. So you're taking your own key concepts and it's certainly driving consumer value. You know, those of us that um, they shop at CVS. Uh, One thing you talked about, Think about total value versus single skew. So how you did that is um, is very creative. So what a cool story. Uh, sorry about the swear words, but, you know, that's learning. It, it is. And then, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, of course, I don't want to, you know, it, it's not all roses, right? So the, 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 the failure for sure, you know, and this comes down to where your leverage place is and you learn your value. Um, when I was at Staples, we had really wanted to try to gain the Apple Mac. As a business-oriented store, we really want. We thought that was important. Um, our chief merchant at the time uh, was extremely um, uh, conscious of the need for the Apple Mac, and we flew all the way out to Cupertino. Had our decks, had everything in order, 
And these guys had no intention of giving us back. And no matter what we tried, and, and, and we had a whole bunch of negotiation scenarios mocked out and tried to get to it. Um, and you, you, you realize sometimes you, they just don't need you. And, it, and sometimes they don't care that they don't need you. And no matter what you did, um, you know, other than me, uh, you know, agreeing to buy $100 million worth of Max myself, um, or the store anyway, uh, we just couldn't get to the volumes that they needed. And they felt that they could own that business consumer through their own channel. So even though we decided to carry iPhones and even though we decided to carry iPads and tried to start the relationship there, it didn't matter. The good and bad and the ugly of negotiation at times, I, I would assume. What um What's the most important lesson you've learned from your time negotiating? I would tell you there's a couple, Mike. Uh, you know, in, in, in general, in my opinion, it's, you know, be prepared. You know, when you when you walk in, even if we if we were not prepared, um, that that negotiation with Apple, I was kind of prepared that they might have a lot of no's. And so I was prepared for that and, and it was coming up with other solutions. Had I not been prepared and just thought I was going to walk in there and get the Mac, um, that may have gotten contentious pretty quick. And which could have deteriorated the whole, even what we were doing, which was somewhat positive. I know we've mentioned it before, but be humble. Got to be humble in the in, in these things because sometimes you know you, you don't have the leverage, and you know even when you do, uh, you know you, you, I found that if you hoard it over people, it w- there will be a point where you don't have the leverage. And it, I've been doing this a long time, Mike, as I know you have as well. You know it, this is like NFL football coaches. We may not all be the head coach of the Bears one day, but we're going to be the head coach of the Bills or the, or the defensive coordinator, and we're all going to see each other at one point or another in a different role. And if you if you stuck it to somebody, rest assured they're they're going to have that in the back of their memory. People I've learned have memory like elephants, um, and it's it's certainly uh, that perspective. One thing I learned from the Gap, which I know I'm not uh, representative of here today, is silence is a tool, and I don't use it very often. But I, I try to remember every once in a while just to, you know, shut up. <laughs> and and it does, it really does work. I, I've been amazed at points where I just, we'll be on a Zoom call with a buyer. And I'll give you a funny example of that. I had a buyer, and as you know, as you get to these Zoom meetings now, um, we had a buyer who did not have her video on. And she was actually vacuuming her apartment during the presentation. So you could actually hear the vacuum going back and forth. So I literally paused for about, seemed like an hour to me, but I think it was about 45 seconds. And finally she came back and she's like, oh, hello. <laughs> and I said, oh, I thought there might be some kind of, you know, construction or some, some type of something that happened. Uh, Cause I heard a lot of loud noise in the background and she quickly realized that we, we knew what she was <laughs> doing. And so that actually got the product placed. <laughs> so she was like, no, no, I'm very interested in place the product, but I had a funny feeling it had a lot more to do with her vacuuming. Um, I, I would tell you one other point is take the emotion out of it. Um, so many times we get caught up in, uh, our end egos and, um, I very guilty of this and you take, start taking things personally. Um, and it's not personal in a lot of cases. And so as long as it's fact-based and that's what I tell people who work for me or with me and my clients, I advise them, let's be factual. We can present the facts. And at the end of the day, the, the unfortunately, the buyer is judge, jury, and executioner. But let's hope that they're factual as well. Take the emotion out of it. Silence as a tool. Be prepared. And I like coming back to the concept you had before around being humble. I, I'm going to pivot. I have a, 
a different question on your sure. your historical successes and sometimes challenges with your negotiations in the retail CPG world. Rob, is is the JBP a real thing? Um, that depends on who you ask. I would tell you, in my experience, a hundred percent. And I'll give you I'll give you an example of that, and you'll you'll get a kick out of this story from um, CVS. Uh, we we went to Cleveland um, because when, if as you can imagine, when I, I discontinued Aquafina and Dasani on the Coke side's perspective from from the twenty four pack, that was quite a bit of volume. But prior to doing that, I had gone and met with Pepsi and their bottling units, and I went out to Cleveland because that was a big Cuyahoga bottling was a big bottler for us in the in the Midwest and did a lot of volume. Pepsi Cleveland and Pittsburgh are big Pepsi markets. And so one of the things I did was I, I met with them and said, look, I can't give you water, but we are undershared in Starbucks. We are undershared in Lipton tea. And I started going through all these ancillary beverages, which I knew were not high volume, but were high margin for the bottlers. And so we negotiated some significant promotions because I was willing to run very much uh, a high frequency and they gave me more depth and frequency than they were giving across the country. And that allowed us to really, they looked at it as an opportunity to gain back share. And for us, it was, we're already underdeveloped anyway. And this allowed me financially to make that work. So that was the funny part. The antidotical part of the story is when I came back, my VP, uh, you know, whimsically said to me, how was your boondoggle in Cleveland? Cause we were out there for a couple of days and I told her that I needed to re reference the Guinness book of world records because I don't think anybody's ever used the word boondoggle in Cleveland in the same sense. <laughs> I'll leave that one there, man. I won't try to send it or say it in, in my own words. Uh, that's a very cool story. And I appreciate the direct answer on the JVPs. It seems as if, if you understand what the opportunities are for both sides and you're really leaning in, as you said, um, you can try to create real business processes together. One of the things that I teach my clients all the time, right, is the importance of being in front of the category manager and, and, and making sure that you are a basically a representative portion of their portfolio. At the end of the day, we need to figure out ways to matter to the category manager. Now, that doesn't always mean dollars. You know, you can be a new innovative product that will grow into market share. You can offer exclusives that will allow them to be competitive, regionally competitive and or uh, advantageous and innovative. There's all different ways to matter to the category manager, but it's important to be in front of them um, and then create those joint business plans. So the reason I said it depends on who you ask is because to your point, as you know, from the gap negotiation training, some people are stuck at one o'clock. And they're never moving from one o'clock. So to them, a JBP is, first of all, even if they think it exists, it, it wouldn't matter to them because what's the purpose? It's a waste of time. It, to people who have evolved uh, around the clock face, um, for me, it's very important uh, to make sure that there's added value on both sides and everybody has skin in the game. Even for myself and my business, you know, one of the questions I get all the time is, Rob, you, you're retainer based and you don't work on commission, where's your skin in the game? And I continually tell people my skin in the game is I'm a 30 day out. And so, you know, I, and I don't have a high, I have a minimal finite client base that I only work with. So I cannot have a high turnover model. And so as long as everyone has skin in the game of some sort, you know, people do view that as value add. I would say that one o'clock, that's uh, it's a bit like Mike Ditko, right? And then that uh, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock is a lot like Joe Gibbs, you know, for for the commanders. No knock on your bears, of course. 
Yeah, no, no more Redskins, Mike. We're using the word commanders now. I didn't think I'd hear you do that. <laughs> Absolutely. Listen, we are right. commanders fans through and through. Uh, right. Listen, it's been a real pleasure, Rob. I'm going to leave you with one last quick question. Sure. Uh, your current consulting company, so the you, you operate as the president as of right now. Are you also in the weeds? Are you helping your clients or do you have a team that helps you out? So combination, Mike, you know, mostly I'm directly involved with my clients, specifically on strategy. What Vandalay strategy brings to the, to the table is, you know, we educate the entrepreneur. That's our phrase. And, and really what we're doing is we're taking people who were in food service businesses or other avenues and have decided that, you know, they want to start a CPG company or they have a really great idea or product that they want to bring to market. We do, a, we do a series of things. One is, is we educate them on how each retailer is different, okay? And it starts with education and how they go to market so that, that we can match strategies with them. The second thing we do is we make sure that they're priced correctly and make sure their COGS are in order. Many of my companies, their COGS for starters are not in order, which when their cost of goods sold are not in order, what happens is you get the negative contribution margin. When you're at negative contribution margin, you can't eat away at your fixed costs. So I work with them and I help them negotiate with their co-packers to make them understand. I, I literally go back to Cleveland. I was just there two weeks ago working with a soup company who was 67% of their cogs were going straight to the, the, uh, the co-packer. And there was no money. This was not a sustainable business model. So we basically went back and were very polite to our co-packer, but said, listen, you can either have a, a smaller piece of an existing pie or you, you really can have no pie because the company won't exist. And here's why. And we laid it on the table and we were very factual and transparent with them. We were just in the process of finalizing 40 percent COGS reductions with them. Now, there is exchange for volumes and longer term commitments. But also this company had no terms with that co-packer. And now they've, they've, they've these guys have understood how cash flow is an important thing to my client. And so they were willing. That was an easy give, as we've talked about for them. So they were able to give terms, given that we've been with them for four years and have never missed a payment. So, you know, those are all things that Vandalay brings to the table. And then once we're done and make sure that the strategy and the structure is right, including promotional strategy, uh, product positioning in the store, et cetera, the last thing we then do is we, I have a series of broker networks. Um, I have guys that specialize just in Publix or Justin Meyer, and it's a little bit like herding cats, but that's part of my job. So to answer your question, I, I am involved in all that. I do have people who work for me who do a lot of the data analytics behind the scenes and or our specialties. I have a guy whose specialty in bringing foreign companies over to the United States, so he gets involved in those. I have another guy who's a forensic uh, a forensic accountant, so he gets involved in, in a lot of these uh, you know analytical type issues uh, to save me a little bit of time. It's been a pleasure. Uh, just want to run through a couple things that we that you touched on. Actually, it was first you talked about understanding who the end customer is, so the consumer, and I think that's really relevant. Uh, Retail Canada as a conduit of that information and and product. You discussed the culture around client centricity and how important it is to stand in the other party's shoes. Um, you also talked about the four key concepts, so innovation. You know you're going to make mistakes, so learn from them, be humble, and again, drive consumer value. Uh, and then you came back and you talked about there is this one tool that we all could use a little help with, and that is silence. Silence could be a tool um, and take the emotion out of it. Rob, it's good to connect, man. 
pleasure. I uh, appreciate the history that we have as um, as friends, but also as business counterparts. And I appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Mike, it was my pleasure. And uh, again, uh, I'm glad uh, one of the best things I've ever done, and I know it's, it's not even a, a, a shameless plug. It literally is a nice plug because honestly, without the Gap Partnership, I would have been on the on those Sun Tzu chapter five by now and, and not evolved. Um, and it really, that course really taught me a lot about it. And I use those principles daily and I mean it. So thank you for that opportunity. And, and again, it's always good to be friends. And uh, we got a Caps Blackhawk game on the uh, 13th of December. So we'll see how that one goes. Yeah, for sure.